not only in the days to come and eternity, but in this life, because we are the chosen and the elect of God. So I rejoice in that, and I pray that you will too. Let's stand, if you would. Let's read together Psalm 8. This is the first Sunday of the new month, also Pentecost Sunday. I think we'll see today that these, this psalm actually intersects with some of the key themes we see uh, uh, Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit for the restoration of mankind, of the people of God, to their place of dominion and authority in the Lord by the Spirit. So let's hear and believe the word of the Lord. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over all the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Father, take these words today. Oh God, I pray that this will be our heart's cry. That we will say this, not just reciting this psalm, but just as the overflow of redeemed hearts, restored hearts, Father, that we love and adore your excellent name, and that we will proclaim that excellent name to all who will hear. We will say it from the rooftops, we will speak it to neighbors, we will speak it whatever context. We will say that Jesus is Lord and His Lordship, His name, His glory, His character is supreme and that He is infinitely delightful and He is the treasure for whom all other things ought to be counted as rubbish, that we and all men may gain Christ and be conformed to Him. So Father, do this, we pray. Put your word and your delight in our hearts and overflow with words. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, brethren. One of the things that, there's many, many things, is, is my family, it's, it's been admittedly quite a few years now since we have done this, but uh, years ago, we had read through, um, actually listened to, and then read through uh, the, the books in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And I know many of you have done that, and you have uh, been, uh, your imaginations, your hearts have been captured, as so many have, by those books. Um, one of the things that particularly, I know, in, in, in the world that, you know, Lewis created, which is very much as obviously allegorical uh, of the redemption and the restoration of the world in Christ. Um, one, of, one of the things that so captured, has always, always captured me though about it was that, you know, in, in Narnia, 
which is representative of, of this world. And in Narnia, you know, the high king of kings, the one whose name, whether even, even when he is not explicitly right in the middle of the action, in all of the books, there's just this resounding sense that everything, everything is about him, right? It's all about, uh, it's all about the glory, uh, the, the, those who are faithful, who are the, the faithful, they are, are earnestly, you know, awaiting the revelation, the coming of, of, of the high king of kings. And they rejoice and they delight, their, their hopes are fully set, their anticipations on an encounter with Aslan. But what I've always found interesting, too, was that, very well done, is that not only, you know, even though it wasn't necessary in all of the, the talking creatures and the, re, the restored uh, creatures uh, in, in Aslan and in, in Narnia, um, even if they were languishing under the curse, waiting for the perpetual winter to finally end and for the spring and the dawn to come, that not only were they yearning for the, to, to see Aslan again, but that there was this prophecy that, as, that Narnia would not be restored to its glory until four sons and daughters of Adam were on the throne, were seated on the thrones there again at Care Paravel. And I always found that interesting because Lewis is actually right on there. Brethren, what we're going to see in this psalm today is not only that the name of the Lord is excellent in all of the earth, among all of his creation, but that he himself has ordained that not only will his glory be manifested above the heavens, but his glory, his kingdom is going to be manifested visibly on earth through redeemed daughters of Eve and sons of Adam, through a restored mankind in Christ the second Adam to dominion and glory and honor to rule brethren this psalm for those of us who believe in and love the dominion mandate and the great commission this is a psalm that is a feast for us because <laughs> this tells us brethren that the king of kings the lord of lords our lord he is committed with zeal to the excellence and the proclamation of his glory, his fame throughout the earth for the joy of all men in his glory. And he is committed to doing that by redeeming and restoring men in Christ to the position that we see in Genesis 1 of fruitfulness, multiplying, dominion, honor, that through man the kingdom will come in fullness and the earth will receive its fullness of blessing and you and I are part of that. So let's take a look at this together. I think it's a marvelous thing. Let's just look first of all, the three key points. Uh, the excellence of our Lord's glory in His name, the excellence of our Lord's glory in His ways, and then the excellence of His glory in mankind, in the restoration of man. Let's look first of all, just in brief, at verse 1 and 9, because this is like uh, bookends on this psalm. Starts, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. 
You have set your glory above the heavens. And then again, verse 9, that ending refrain, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, in all the land. He starts here, and, and this is important, uh, he, def- he identifies, the psalmist David identifies here, the Lord, and he says, O Lord, our Lord. This, and he says about the excellence of this name. I remind you, brethren, that in the Bible, the name, names are supremely important. Right? Names are not just haphazard things. It's like, eh, whatever, it sounds good. Names define people. They define destinies. They define character. And, you know, there's all kinds of examples of, you know, God giving names to choice servants. We can think of Jacob having his name changed to Israel, one who wrestled with the Lord and prevailed uh, with the Lord. We, we can think of Saul being his name changed to Paul. We think of, think of Cephas. And Jesus said, no longer will you be Cephas, uh, but now you're going to be Petros. <laughs> you're Peter. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of Hades won't prevail. Um, name changes matter, and God defines names. As we go there, we're going to see this is very reminiscent, though. Think of Adam in the garden as he was naming the creatures, looking at their characteristics. Before there was sin, and Adam was giving names that would be definitive, defining of these creatures that the Lord had made. So it's a very distinctively bearing of God's image. We'll see more on that in a minute. But the glorious name of the Lord then, when we speak of the Lord's name in the earth, it represents the entirety of his character, his essence, who he is and what he has done. And so the name of the Lord here, it says here, is excellent in our New King James. The word behind that, um, literally adir, is excellent, majestic, uh, powerful, regal, these are synonyms, uh, lordly, mighty. Those are words that the Hebrew word behind that is translated as. The idea is that it is excellent specifically and especially with regard to the authority and the royal prerogative and glory, the beauty of the, of the God as king, right? of the Lord as the king of kings. You can imagine, think of Psalm 45, uh, you know, that marvelous description there. Of, 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 the, the Lord, of the Lord and his glorious majesty and his courts, you know, the robes behind him as the high king. It's that sort of thing. It's the glory, the excellence of his name. And, and he says here that that glory, the psalmist says that glory, the excellence of the name is in all of his kingdom, all of the earth, all of the land that is part of, that has been given to him and uh, as well as in the heavens, he says, the glory is set in the heavens. And so this is, this is an exclamation at the very beginning, the psalmist just regaling, overflowing with his song his, of the glory of the high king of kings and his glorious procession and train and beauty in his temple and saying, oh, the excellence, the, the glorious royal beauty and authority and, and blessing to have a king of kings, a God who rules and reigns like our God, right? A God who is our God. Well, well, and, and specifically, look at the name he says. He says, O Lord, our Lord. Th- these are important terms. Again, the name rendered Lord, the first one, O Lord, is in our English translation, capital L-O-R-D. 
That is the name Jehovah. Jehovah. That is the name that the Lord revealed himself to, you recall, uh, to Moses. If you just look, if you want to, back in Exodus chapter 3, when we see this name show up, the Lord uh, re- reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 3, 13. He says, Moses said to God, Indeed, when I am come to the children of Israel, and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. They say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am Yehoah. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the God who is faithful. The I am has sent me to you. Skip ahead in Exodus to chapter 33. Exodus 33, verse 19. Here's Moses meeting with the Lord on Mount Sinai, ascending into the presence of the Lord. He had asked the Lord in verse 18 of chapter 33, Oh, Lord, please show me your glory. The Lord said, I will make all my goodness to pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Jehovah, the name of the Lord before you. I'm going to proclaim it. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And lastly, chapter 34 of Exodus, one chapter over, verse 5 to 7. Here's Moses yet on the mountain. The Lord descended in the cloud, stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. There's Jehovah. Proclaimed the name Jehovah. And Jehovah, the Lord, passed before him and proclaimed. So here's the name. Here's what it means. The Lord, Jehovah, Jehovah, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy, steadfast love, literally, loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Brethren, the question is, what does the name Jehovah mean? What are the implications of, O Lord, O Jehovah? That name that is excellent in all the earth, right there is what it means. When the Lord proclaimed that name, this is all that he said there. This is the implication. The glorious beauty, faithfulness, majesty, mercifulness, grace, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, and yet just and holy in all of his ways, keeping mercy and steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who seek him, but visiting iniquity and no means clearing the guilty of his enemies and those who are the enemies of his people. Brethren, that is the name. That is, O Lord. And he goes on, he says, not only O Lord, but our Lord. And you notice in your English translations that that time it's lowercase o-r-d. It's literally, O Jehovah, our Adonai. Adonai has the idea of my master, my, my Lord. The one to whom the psalmist says, King David, the one to whom I am subservient, the one who rules over me, the one to whom I am accountable as a king, the king over all kings. 
That's the implication of this. Turn to Psalm 110, if you would. This is a familiar psalm to us. But David, again, speaking in a very similar vein, when we, and we, begin to, we begin to see the trajectory of this psalm in the Spirit. There's some similarities here. Psalm 110, David begins, as you know, the Lord Jehovah said to my Lord, to my Adonai, sit at my right hand till I make all of your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion who rule in the midst of your enemies and your people be volunteers in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning and so on. That's the picture we see of the Lord whose excellent name is in all of the earth in his kingly glory. But he says here, David says, O Jehovah, my Adonai, my Lord, my King over this King and all of my subjects, all the people of your people who are part of my, the earthly kingdom, they are your subjects and we are your people. That's the implication. And this is what he is rejoicing, that Jehovah, who is the Lord of lords, who is our Lord, the Lord of the people, the chosen of the Lord, who is Lord over his kingdom, and who is committed to the glory and the expanse of that kingdom, the excellence of his name throughout all of the earth, and who promised to David that he would build him a house, and a house for the Lord's name. That that God has set his glory, he says, further above the heavens, but that his name is excellent in all of the earth. So before we go further, by way of application, I just want to ask you, I want to ask you, brethren, is, would you say to me today, Brother Steve, that I, I cherish the name and the fame, the glory of this Lord, my Lord. Can you call him your Lord? That, that's the issue for us as Christians, isn't it? Even the devils, James says, they know there's a God. They, they know the name of Jehovah. They know who he is and they tremble. But brethren, for you and I who are in Christ, he is the Lord, our Adonai. He is my Lord. And I am his and he is mine. I am committed by faith in him because as a member of his kingdom to be a loyal subject, subject to his laws, to his righteousness, pursuing what pleases him. Because I own him and all of his glorious excellencies of his name above all things on this earth. I will count them all as lost that I may gain Christ the King of kings and be found in him, in his kingdom with his righteousness, with his name on me as a Christian. It is a profound thing, brethren, to be called a Christian, is it not? To have his name upon me and to wear that from the Lord. Do you delight and cherish the name and the glory of honor in the Lord? And do you passionately want to see the Lord, our Lord, glorified in all the earth? Would you say that's your chief commitment? Brethren, if not, then let this be the day that you repent of that, of loving lesser things, loving passing pleasures, other lords, other idols, and say, oh Lord, I want a heart that is wholly devoted, Lord, to you, consecrated to you. Jesus is my King of kings, Lord of lords, and I will not be ashamed of him and his words and his kingdom before men.
Secondly, we've seen the glory of the Lord in his name, which is the key theme of this psalm, beginning and end, but he also goes on and talks about the excellence of our Lord's glory in his ways. Look at verse 2. Because the Lord's ways are such as you might not expect. How is it that when David he says, O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all of the earth, on the one hand he says, you have established your glory above the heavens. You could say, well, that's marvelous. In the heavens and above the earth, uh, in, in the heavenly realms, the celestial realms, his glory is established. But we're here on earth. I'm seeking, how does the Lord's glory in heavens get manifested on earth among men? And here, look what he says here. In God's ways, he says, that out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained or you have established literally strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemies and the avengers. You may, you may silence those who do not esteem the excellence and the majesty of your name in all the earth. Those who serve another kingdom, another God, you may put them to shame and exalt your people. Let, let me put it a different way. Notice two things, two things fall out of verse 2. Number one, that God is glorified by opening the mouths of his little ones who believe in him to publicly praise him. You think of passages like Matthew 18 and 19, you know, where... Uh, the disciples, where they bring the children to Jesus, and he says, uh, you know, do, forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Unless you have faith like a little child, that doesn't mean a childish faith, it doesn't mean an ignorant faith, but it means a faith in God that trusts him as God, that leans wholly upon him, that is not just rooted in knowledge about him, but that says, no, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and I am going to follow him, and I'm going to trust him and lean the whole weight of my life onto him and his promises and his kingdom. That's, that's trust, that childlike dependence abiding in him. And, 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 and the, God is glorified by opening the mouths of his little ones who believe. And Jesus even says, you know, in Matthew, I think in 19, he says, um, these little ones who believe in me, and he speaks of their angels that the Lord is assigned to them to guard and protect them. And he says, woe to the person that causes such a one to stumble. It'd be better for them to be, you know, have a millstone and cast into the sea and cause one of these little ones who believe in me to, to stumble. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, a familiar passage as we look at this. But this is the idea. It's not just, it, it includes little children who believe in him, as we'll see in a minute. But look at Paul's words applying the, the principle here of this more broadly. Verse 18, let me just read this. For the message of the cross, the, the message of, O Lord, our Lord, whose name is excellent in all the earth, who in the incarnate Christ came to earth to demonstrate the excellencies of his name by and through the cross. Amazing. But Paul says here, the message of the cross of the glorious God humiliated is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This gospel of the kingdom is power, is written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. 
Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where, where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Skip down to verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that's God's way. He has chosen, the, to use the words of the psalmist, the out of babes, spiritual nursing infants, the weak, the helpless, the littlest of ones, you have ordained and established your strength, your praise. And why does God do this? Look at verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 1. So that no flesh should glory in God's presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom. He became for us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, he who boasts, he who glories, let him glory in capital L-O-R-D, in Jehovah. That's right back to Psalm 8, isn't it? Turn to Matthew 21, if you would. This particular passage is cited by our Lord Jesus, you remember, at his triumphal entry, and we see a sense here of how this plays out with respect to Jesus, very specifically. Matthew 21, Jesus has just come in, and the multitudes, verse 8, a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, branches and so on. The multitudes went before and cried out, Hosanna. Literally, that, that word Hosanna has the idea of, uh, of, of, of rejoicing in a conquering Savior. Right? That's what Hosanna means. It's a regal term again. Conquering Savior, praise to the conquering Savior, the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Jehovah, the name of the capital L-O-R-D, who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise to the conquering Savior in the highest. That should go right back to the angelic host. Remember back in Luke 2. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill among men. But then look what happens. The whole city was moved. Multitudes said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Galilee. But then Jesus goes on. He proceeds further then and goes into the temple of God. And what does he do? He drives out those who are buying and selling in the temple. He overturns tables of money changers, the seats of those selling doves and so on. He, he rages this my house will be called a house of prayer you've made it a den of thieves quoting from jeremiah and then look what happens though the blind the lame they they come into the temple it appears the multitudes have kind of fallen behind at this point they didn't follow him all the way into the temple right but who is with him in the temple the lame the blind he heals them and then the chief priests and scribes, they saw these wonderful things he did, and they saw the children crying out in the temple. The children, 
Even though the adults apparently had fallen behind, the children just kept right on going. There's this group of little ones around him, and they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They don't care what the scribes and the priests and Pharisees think. They're saying, Jesus, the Messiah, the long-awaited son of David. The scribes and Pharisees were indignant. They said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? These little ones, these children, in their ignorance, do you hear what they're saying? Almost just see their... their... Jesus said to them, yes. Oh, yes. Have you never read Psalm 8, 2? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. You see what Jesus is doing here? Psalm 8, 2, this is exactly what he's talking about. And notice here, out of the babes of mouth of babes and nurses and infants, you have perfected praise. Who is the you to whom this psalm is referring to? O Lord, our Lord. Brethren, Jesus is doing nothing short, and the scribes and Pharisees knew it. He is ascribing to himself the place of O Lord, our Lord whose name is excellent in all the earth. And he is saying, out of this, this what you just witnessed is exactly what he's talking about. The lame, the, the, the weak, the debased, who are despised among men, like you've just despised them, right? The, the, the ones who are not exalted, who are considered worthless and not worthy of time. The Lord God has chosen to exalt his name among men by choosing those kind of people. So that he who boasts and glories will boast only in the Lord so that he will get the glory and men who have been redeemed, children and those with that childlike faith, they will get the joy. It is exactly through those kind of people, he says, that my kingdom will go forth in them. That's the point. And he says not only that he's going to open the mouths of little ones, but he goes on and he says he's going to shut the mouths of his enemies who don't believe. Because at the end he says, you've done this so that because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. If you continue on in Matthew 21, look what, he, what happens after this. Jesus leaves them. He went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Now the next morning, in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately that fig tree withered away. When the disciples saw it, they marveled. How did the fig tree wither away so soon? Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly, I say to you, you I say to you, my disciples, you who are despised by the Pharisees, who are despised by the scribes, who are among those who, Jesus, who in John 7 said that these people are cursed, not knowing the law. They cast them out. That you who follow me in simple childlike faith, my disciples, he says, Surely I say to you, if you have faith and you do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but you will also say to this mountain, and here he is, he's looking up at the Temple Mount as he's coming into the city, you will say to this mountain, be removed, be cast into the sea. It will be done. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. 
Brethren, Jesus' goal, his point isn't that he's looking to take the mountain and throw it into the Mediterranean Sea. The point is, is that the mountain represented, the temple represented the, had actually come to represent the very thing that Jesus had just said. You turn it into a den of thieves. Right? And he's going to say in Matthew 23 later that he is leaving and you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, just like these little children out of whose mouths I have ordained praise say, and Jesus departed and he said, Your house, not my house, your house, your mountain is left to you desolate. So he says to these disciples here, You little ones, you have faith. You will be my instruments, your prayers in my name. Your words will actually be the very thing that I will use to throw down my enemies and your enemies. I will use the words of nursing babes and infants, of little ones who believe and trust in me, and their words will be answered when they call on high, and I will remove evil. I will remove the obstacles. I will overthrow the wicked and my enemies, for their sake and mine, that my gospel may be proclaimed in its excellency throughout the earth. Do you see what's going on here? That's the significance of verse 2. It's the little ones who open their mouths in praise and who by their pr prayers shut the mouths of the enemies. Just a couple of applications very quickly. Number one, our God loves paradoxes, doesn't he? The greatest is the servant of all. Overcome evil with good. Unless you have faith like a little child, you will not inherit, enter the kingdom. Jesus says that salvation comes to the sinners, not the self-righteous, right? It comes to those who are, who are sick rather than those who are well. The, the kingdom comes to the blind. Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind rather than those who believe they see, John 9. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost rather than those who think that they know the way. The meek will inherit the earth. That's how God works, right? He chooses the babes and nursing ones to be the ones that he has chosen and who through them will advance his kingdom on earth and his excellence and glory. That's something I want to be part of, don't you? That's amazing that he would choose people like you and me, full of sin, weak vessels of clay, and that he would fill us with his glory and his spirit and commission you and I as priests and kings to go forth and proclaim his excellencies. I will also add that this means that public praise of the living God is a powerful weapon of war. One of the things I'm hoping to see more of as we work with other churches love him would be the sort of thing that has been done like out in Moscow, Idaho with public psalm sings. It's not just because I love singing psalms. I do the war psalms of the Prince of Peace. But brethren, when the people of God, these who are the chosen of the Lord, publicly stand in the square and proclaim the excellency of the Lord of all the earth for all of the enemies to hear, both visible and invisible, brethren, there is power, there is shaking of the heavens. There is a changing of the spiritual climate that takes place. There's binding and loosing that goes forth. And as we pray with holy hands lifted high, 1 Timothy 2.8, without wrath and dissension, and we implore the Lord, who Paul says there is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe, 
Brethren, that public proclamation, just like the little children on the day of, of coming in when Jesus came in, Hosanna to the Son of David. Yeah, let the demons hear. Yes, let all of the enemies of the Lord hear. We are publicly, boldly declaring Jesus is Lord. What's taking place there, brethren, is actually a prophetic act that changes and transforms, that, that begins to shape, and the Lord uses that. Think back to the prophets. Think back to Jeremiah going to the potter's house, right? And giving this, go, go see, Jeremiah purchasing a field right as they were getting ready to go into exile, right? Jeremiah was like, well, what's up with that? We're going into exile. Why are you purchasing a field? Because this is a prophetic declaration of the Lord. My people will come back here. This field will once again be the property visibly of the people of God. It's a, you're laying down a stake. It's Ezekiel building ramparts around uh, the, the siege mound of, the, of Jerusalem or sitting there cut, cutting up his hair, <laughs> laying on his side. These are prophetic acts, brethren, but when the people of God together corporately in faith and unity stand to publicly declare the excellencies and the praises of the Lord and to pray both prayers of blessing as well as, when needful, imprecations, Brethren, our Lord said that to his church was entrusted the power to bind and to loose. Where there are two or three gathered in my name, in the name of the Lord, our Lord, whose name is excellent in all the earth, that what happens, that the Lord, he says, is present with them, they constitute an executive divine council assembly on earth, and that their prayers are used, are part, and God will use and will, will move. Brethren, that's what the church of Jesus Christ is. That's staggering. So let's then lastly consider in brief, what is the Lord's excellent glory in mankind? I'm just going to look at verse 3 through 8 just real briefly. He says here, the psalmist is astonished. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, you can imagine him just sitting there looking up at the night sky, unimpeded by, uh, unimpeded as ours are by, by street lights and all that. <laughs> He's out in the, here's David out in the field like the shepherd, looking up at the stars, seeing just the things that Abraham saw. All of those stars, lights in the sky. And, and David says, when I consider the stars, your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained. What is man? What, what is man? What am I that you are mindful of him, of mankind? That, that you put your image in Genesis 1 into Adam? You made him the very good image bearer of God and you put him over all of that? Or the son of man? Where do we hear that? phrase again. That's a phrase that Jesus uniquely applies to himself, right? It's a hint of the messianic implications of this psalm. That you visit him. You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You, you've put all things under his feet. Sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, air, fish of the sea that pass through. All of it under his feet. And, and as you read that, you should be saying, now wait a minute. He says here that you are, God, that you are mindful of him, speaking of Adam, or mankind, right? That's what the word means. And the son of man, that you visit him. Now, if he just simply meant sons of men, plural, could have said that. The Hebrew could have been plural, but that's not what it says. It's a singular, son of man. 
I want to submit to you, and you'll see in a minute why I think that, that this is a unique reference to the Son of Man. You visit the children of Adam, you visit mankind, you've established him, and the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, you visit him. What is the connection then? When he says, therefore, you have made him a little lower than the angels, literally the word is Elohim, a little lower than the little g gods, not, not again, that's another sermon, but the angelic divine council, right? You've made man just a little, you've made him a little lower. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. The question comes in, is he talking about man or is he talking about the son of man? Who is the referent? Yes? Turn to Hebrews 2 and with this we'll close. It's the passage we read today is our New Testament reading. I, I love this passage. Remind you that Hebrews starts off, you know, with this glorious exaltation in chapter 1. God, who in times past spoke in various ways and means to the fathers by the prophets, he is in these last days spoken to us by a son, the son whom he is appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who is the brightness of his glory and the very exact express image of his person, that son who upholds all things by the works, by the word of his power, that son who came and purged our sins and who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, than the Elohim, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He has inherited a name that is more excellent in all the earth. Just hearing Psalm 8 and all this, right? But then when we get to chapter 2, Here's the implications of that. Verse 5, the, song, the writer of the Hebrews says, He, God, has not put the world, the coming world, of which we are speaking, He's not put it in subjection to angels. He hasn't put it in subjection even to Elohim. He, but one testified in a certain place. That just, I will tell you, that gives me such comfort. For those of you who are like I am at times, it's just like, yeah, where's that verse? I know that verse. I, can't remember the reference. One is testified in a certain place. <laughs> I don't know the reference, but I know it's back there somewhere. Here's what he said, quoting Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have set him over the works of your hands and put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. Stop there. You're reading that in the, in the writer of the Hebrews is clearly talking about mankind, redeemed mankind, these Jewish Christians to whom he's writing in Christ. God has put all things in subjection to your, under his feet, right? He's just got done in the first four verses telling them, beware lest you drift away from so great salvation. Because the Lord has put all things and is calling you and all things under your feet, Psalm 8. But then he goes on. Look at the second part of verse, verse 8. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. What do we see? Verse 9. We see Jesus, the Son of Man, 
who was made a little lower than the angels, just like us, for the suffering of death. He was crowned with glory and honor. Think back to Psalm 8, you have crowned him with glory and honor, right? We see him who for the suffering of death in his humiliation was crowned with glory and honor so that he, by the grace of God, might taste death literally for all. The idea is for all of his people, for, for every tribe, tongue, and nation, for all of those people, for the world, he would taste death. It was fitting for him, Jesus, for whom all things, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to what? bringing many sons to glory. Again, Psalm 8. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Jesus, it was fitting for Jesus in bringing many sons, daughters to glory to make the captain of their salvation, the son of man whom God visited, to make him perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, that is Jesus and you and me who are being sanctified, set apart, cleansed, purified. They are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. I will declare the name of Jehovah our Adonai to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, those nursing babes and infants, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I in the children that God has given to me. Here am I, Jehovah, Father. I am the Son of Man, the Adonai, and here I am with all these babes and nursing infants that you have given to me to proclaim your praises on earth as in heaven and to shut the mouths of your enemies. Here I am, Father, and because of what I have done for them as the second Adam, Father, now in me, crown them with glory and honor. Establish them over the works of your hands. Put all things in subjection under their feet as you have for me. Hebrews 2 then just ends this way. And listen to what it says. Verse 16. For indeed, he, Jesus, the Son of Man, does not give aid to the angels but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Aid them for what purpose? Brethren, he is able to aid you and I to be more than conquerors through him who loved us, to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil by our faith. The Son of Man is the means by which mankind and Jesus will be redeemed. Brethren, do you see that? So the only possible response then is to close with this. Brethren, in light of all this, oh, let me say this with me. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent, how excellent is that name in all of you. Let's pray. Oh God, how excellent is your name. How excellent is the name of Christ, the Son of Man, that you have put on us, that we are children of God, that we are Christians. 
What a marvelous thing it is to know that we bear the name from which every family in heaven and earth is named. What a marvelous thing it is to know that you, whose glory is set in the heavens, whose name is excellent in all the heavens, that you have also said that out of the mouth of babes and infants, us, with childlike faith, trust in Jesus, holding fast to Jesus, that you have declared that you have, out of people like us, you have ordained and established praise, and that through us you will shut the mouths of your enemies and ours, and you will establish us in glory and crown us with honor, that we will reign in life through him who loved us. Father, I pray for myself, I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here. May we know, may we know the reality that we are yours, that you are in us and for us, and may we truly, by faith in Jesus Christ, that Son of Man, may we see that we will be more than conquerors through him who loved us, even as you have predestined us and called us to glory. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.